0: They heard God say Have you considered my Servant Job He's one who's Faithful in all That he knows Job lost his family His land And all his wealth When he wouldn't Curse God Job lost his health Job's
1: Well, again, we're so honored so thrilled that you could be here today. Why don't you take your Bibles, if you would, and get them ready. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, didn't I? <clears throat> wow. Okay, gotcha there, huh? All right. Well, we're in a uh, series here over the next couple of weeks uh, I call Discoveries That Revolutionize Our Lives. And last week, we talked about creation, the work of God. And today we want to consider this thought, the Bible, the Word of God. And again, if we can truly make these discoveries, if we can really come to the conclusion and understand that indeed creation is the work of God, and, then, and without doubt the Bible is the Word of God, then it's going to revolutionize our lives. <clears throat> it will revolutionize our lives. And uh, next week we'll talk about the Savior, the way to God, and finally salvation, the will of God. And... Boy, these are discoveries that we make through life and uh, through our years that uh, revolutionize our lives, change our lives forever, if indeed we truly receive and accept these as reality in our lives. And so today, <clears throat> we're going to take a few moments and consider that thought, the Bible, the Word of God. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll continue. We'll get to the Bible stuff here soon. I'm trust, uh, trust me on that. Father, we come to you. We need you today. Lord, we are a needy people. God of heaven, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would work in lives, that He would truly move in our midst. Lord, may You walk up and down these aisles and convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Father, may the Word of God, Father, be elevated in our eyes. And, Father, may we recognize the fact that it's Your Word and that, therefore, it is authentic and it is authoritative. And, Father, we need to yield to it then. Father, I pray that, Father, you would just speak to our hearts now and do a work in our lives, something that only you can do. May what is done today be eternal, not just simply a temporal movement of our emotion. Father, we'll thank you as you receive the glory and the honor. And Lord, there may be someone here that really has never even settled whether or not they're going to spend eternity with you. They don't know for sure heaven's their home one day. And Father, they may be thinking to themselves, there's no way anyone can know that, but thank you that your word... Your Bible is the Word of God, and in that book, the Bible says that these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. We're so glad that eternal life isn't dependent on us. It's dependent on you. We simply yield to you, and you extend to us. Blessing beyond measure. Encourage us through the Word of God today. Be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, let me share a few facts with you, the facts. Well, in an article written by Albert Moeller and entitled, The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy, It's Our Problem, that's the title of the article, we're reminded of how desperate a situation that Christianity finds itself in today. Now, while we may rightly cons- uh, be concerned about modern um, modern views, modern worldviews, views views that reject Christianity, views that reject the Bible, views that reject faith in general, we ought to really give some real thought and consideration to the problem that's a little closer to home. And that problem is biblical illiteracy in the church and even in the lives of many people in the church. After reviewing the data, researchers George Gallup and Jim Costelli they make an alarming observation. They say, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. Isn't that something? Now, how bad is it then? Researchers tell us it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can even name the four Gospels. Isn't that something? Many Christians cannot even identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. You've got to wonder why we break so many of the commandments all the time. Maybe it's that we don't know them. That's what George Barna at least came to. That's what he said. The bottom line, he said, increasingly, America is biblically illiterate. That's what he said. According to 82% of Americans, the the statement, now here's the statement, God helps those who help themselves. 82% of Americans believe that's a Bible verse. Now, we know that we ought to help ourselves a little bit in the sense that we, we, we can't expect, you know, God to do everything and He tells us to go and, uh, to all the world and preach the gospel. Obviously, if we don't go, then He is not going to be able to accomplish His purpose and plan in our life. And uh, God, did you say, well, He'd do it anyway? I understand, but there are elements here where we have to put feet to our prayers. We understand all that. <laughs> but, I mean, <clears throat> God helps those who help themselves. It's a Bible verse, 82% of Americans believe so. By the way, those identifying as born again Christians did do better, by 1%. Isn't that amazing? By 1%. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. That's what the research taught, and that's something. And, and unfortunately, right there, some people got, I felt a kink. I felt a kink right there. Some people went, well, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. But nonetheless, that's what most Americans believe. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife.
2: <laughs>
1: Can you imagine? Yeah. Who's that Joan of Arc? Oh, well, that was Noah's wife, wasn't it?
2: <laughs>
1: Why not? It's got Ark in it. <laughs> Another survey of graduating high school seniors, these are graduating high school seniors, revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Yeah. They thought they were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Can you imagine that? The Sermon on the Mount preached by Billy Graham. Now, I know he's pretty old, but he's not that old. I mean, What we have here is an element of biblical illiteracy. We have a a book that often is called the Bible, and and yet it seems that, as we said here from the research, the facts state and indicate that very few people really spend any time in the Word of God. I wonder uh, if that's the case, how long will it be before we don't spend any time at all in it? So we want to consider some findings then. I mean, we note the facts that increasingly Americans are not picking up the Word of God. We're not spending time in the Word of God. We don't put a very big premium on the Word of God. And that's, those are just simply the facts. I'll share more facts with you tonight as I pick up the second part of this message. But it's an amazing trend that we see taking place. But what about the findings then? Well, there's evidence that supports the authority and the divine nature of the Bible. I mean, we say the Bible. Well, the Bible, the Word of God. This is God's Word, we say. So is there any evidence? Is there any proof of that? Well, yes, there is proof of that. There is. And those are the findings I want to share with you, just a few of those. And again, I don't have time to go into all of them. There's so much that I would share. I had over 10 pages of notes before I walked out here. I literally wrote X's through things because there's no way I can get through it all. There's so much. And so I'm going to pick up some of that tonight and talk about some of it. But there are. There's a number of evidences that the the Bible is the Word of God. Now listen, it's not just a book we're going to find that was written by a group of men that decided to put it together and, you know, come up with some stories. And I mean, that we hear that all the time, don't we? You know, the Bible. Well, I just think it's written by men. I think it's written by people who wanted to control the masses. I believe that it's just a book to bring comfort and strength to folks. I mean, that song brought tears to my eyes today when they started singing about the fact that that young man received news that he had cancer. Let me tell you something. If you've ever thought you had cancer, you felt that when they said, sang that. If you even thought you had it, you, you, and for just that split moment, your heart just sank in you. And you remembered how you felt when you thought you had it. And it is one of the worst feelings in the world. But thank God we have a Bible, and it's real. And that means that heaven's real. And that means that God's real. And that means all of those things. But what are some of the findings? What's some of the evidence? We can talk about it all day, but can we prove it? Well, I believe we can prove it in many aspects. The evidence for the authority of the Bible falls into two major categories. One, internal evidence. Internal evidence would be the evidence that's found within the Bible itself. And then, of course, there's external evidence. That would be evidence that's found outside the Bibles. Evidences that involve archaeology, science, philosophy, maybe ancient manuscripts that have been found through the years. So we have internal evidence, we have external evidence that prove the authenticity, the authority of, the divine nature of the Word of God. We start with internal evidence then. First of all, we have the Bible that proclaims itself to be the Word of God. We're talking about internal evidence. See, the authors knew that they were writing the words of God. They didn't necessarily know exactly what they meant. They didn't understand everything that was being written. I've often said it in the past and tried to illustrate it this way. The fact is is that when it's all said and done, if I took my my pen today and I wrote my name on it, wrote my name on this piece of paper, there we have my name, Mark. And I ask the question, who wrote that? You would say what? You did. Mark wrote it, right? But you wanna know something? In one sense, the pen wrote it. Do you know what happens when people say that man wrote the Bible? They take God out of it. See, mankind was simply a pen that God used to write it. Nobody would have ever said, the pen wrote that name. You'd say, no, Mark wrote that name. He wrote his own name on a piece of paper. He's the author of what was just written. Mark is. You wouldn't give the pen credit for being the author. And you know what happens so many times when we deal with the Word of God is that people look at the the Bible and they say, man wrote the Bible. Did he? No, I believe from what I can read and what I can tell, at least internal evidence, and as we'll see, maybe even a little external, man was simply the instrument God used. In Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Why don't you turn there if you have your Bible? Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter three, verse 16. <clears throat> what a tremendous passage we have here. The Bible simply says, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God." Notice that first portion there. Just right off the bat, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But notice, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed. That means that God was the author. God was the one that truly, the thought came to Him. He's the one who had the idea. He's the one who, who put it, the decided to put it in writing or put it on paper. It wasn't man that decided that. Scriptures by inspiration. God breathed. It's his word. Man is simply the instrument. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, turn there. Go to the right in your Bible. To the right. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. You're going to go a little ways there, not too far. If you get past Revelation, you've gone too far. <laughs> You know, while, while we're at it, I'm sorry, I have to share this. I, I do. I was told I had to, and I forgot to earlier. Please, I, I'll get back to this, and I'm not trying to break the spirit, but I was told this is important for the whole crowd. Have you ever called one of those, you, you call somebody up or you call a business, and you get one of those things where you've got to push buttons? Yeah. You know, You know, do this, push this button, do this, push this button. I, I don't know about you, but if you've done that a few times during the day, you've been dealing with business or trying to get through the banking system or whatever it is, it drives you crazy, does it not? Well, I want to welcome you to the psychiatric hotline. If you're obsessive-compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. If you're codependent, please ask someone to press press, uh, press 2 if you have multiple personalities, please press three, four, five, and six. If you, are a parano- if you are paranoid, we know who you are and what you want. Just stay on the line so we can trace the call. If you are schizophrenic, listen carefully and a little voice will tell you which number to press. And finally, if you're a manic-depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press, nobody will answer. <laughs> now, with that being said, let's find ourselves as in Second Peter one we We're speaking again about the Bible and how it proclaims itself to be the Word of God. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Notice again, it came not by the will of man. Again, we're talking about internal evidence. We're saying that man can self-proclamation here, the Bible itself says that it is not man's word, it's God's word. Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament as authoritative. Matter of fact, he quoted it a number of times in the New Testament. Not only do we see self-proclamation, but we know the Holy Spirit itself, himself, I should say. He makes some statements. The Bible says, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Well, the Bible tells us that Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So we know what He's saying is, is that the Holy Spirit Himself is going to guide mankind. He's going to help people understand this book, the Word of God. This is not just man's book. This is God's book being guided and directed and led by God Himself. You cannot understand the Word of God without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We see the self-proclamation, we see the Holy Ghost here uh, in that internal evidence. We note transforming ability of the Bible. Look if you will in Hebrews four twelve. The Bible claims to be able to make a difference, to change lives in a sense, to impact us right where we live. Hebrews four twelve. In Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve, we read For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice again the Word of God. It's quick. It makes things alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. It cuts. It gets to the heart of things. and It reaches to the very heart of man and uh, mankind. This book, the Word of God, has transformed lives. It's changed men and women around the world. And the Bible teaches us, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove it is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The fact is, is that that book, that same one we read about in Hebrews 4.12, that is a two-edged sword. It will ultimately transform and change our lives. And that's what the Bible claims of itself. So it says, you still haven't proven that the Bible is the Word of God. I understand that. Self-proclamation, transforming ability, Holy Spirit. I understand those three right there. I wouldn't take those loaded to a debate. Let me tell you that. I'd get shredded. Because let's face it, if we're trying to prove that the, the Bible is the Word of God, well, you can't define a word by itself. You can't use the word you're defining in the definition. You learned that in school, right? And to some degree, that's exactly what we just did here. But there is an element that I think is maybe a little bit more um, powerful, an element that seems to kind of maybe help us understand that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the element of unity in the Bible. Now, this one's a little bit more powerful, I think. I think it, it, it encourages us a little more in this area. You think about unity in the Bible. I mean, the Bible covers... Hundreds of topics, and yet they don't contradict one another. I know you get a Bible critic here and there that will say, well, there's all kind of contradictions in the Word of God. No, that, that's because there's a lot of there's a lot of gray, gray area in the, between the ears of mankind. See, from here to here, there's a lot of gray matter. See, it's a, it's a gray area. No, it's, it's called mankind's view. See, the truth is that we can't interpret the Bible except through and by the Bible itself. See, I don't decide what the Bible says. I have to go to scripture and let scripture define what it says. I don't have the liberty to say, "Well, I believe and I think and no, that's I don't have that right. I have to go and say, "Well, the word of God says this about this and over here it says this and over here it says this and you compare scripture with scripture and you come to conclusions. Be careful because the Bible says you must rightly divide the word of truth. How's come there's so many faiths? How's come there so many religions? How's come there so many denominations? Because if we're not careful, we all come to different conclusions based on the, what we believe the Bible says. I, I was always taught, my dad would say, I I, I mean what I say, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. Do you know God does too? Do you know if it's wrong for one believer to not do something, go somewhere, or whatever, it's wrong for everyone? Do you realize that you can't just say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I don't, I don't think that's what it means. See, the question is not, what does the Bible mean? The question is, what does the Bible say? Because what it says it means. Yes. Amen. I, mean, I like how we like to dismiss things based on our cultural upbringing or based on the fact that we, we, we have this perspective or worldview that is tainted maybe by our past. I understand all that, and I see why it works that way. But the fact is, is that what the Bible says is what it means. If my dad told me to clean the bedroom before he got home from work, I'm going to tell you right now, there was no excuse in the world that met the need. If it wasn't clean, I was in trouble, unless I was in the hospital or dead. (laughs) I mean, because what he said, he meant. And he made it very clear, clean your bedroom before I get home. Actually, my mom would say that about 10 times a day. But my dad would say, make sure you take the trash out before I get home from work. That's usually kind of something my dad would say. And, you know, it was pretty clear. If I didn't do what he said, who was wrong? Me. But dad, I thought you meant, he'd say, I don't care what you thought. You should have done what I said. Now, so we see the word of God. Now, here we go. We got all these different topics. They don't contradict one another. They really don't. There are explanations for those things. There's biblical explanations. You know, so, well, the number over there in the book of Ezekiel doesn't match the number over there in Isaiah. And there's this little, just this discrepancy. Yeah, there's discrepancies for reasons. You've got to dig that out. God's trying to teach you something. So what I want to talk to you real quick is about unity. The Bible covers these hundreds of topics. It doesn't contradict itself. It remains united. It remains consistent. Consider some of these facts. First of all, the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years. Can you imagine that? This book, the Bible, the Word of God, was written over a span of 1,500 years. Do you, do you realize that it was written by more than 40 different men, or that they, 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 God used 40 different men to pen this book? 40 different people to, 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 to literally put down on paper what was already in heaven. And they were all from different walks of life. They were all from different walks of life. For example, Moses was educated in Egypt. I mean, he ultimately became the prophet of Israel, but he was educated in Egypt. Peter was a simple fisherman. I mean, he was was uneducated. Matter of fact, he was called an unlearned and ignorant man, according to the Pharisees the scribes and and the religious leaders of his day over in the book of Acts chapter 4. You have Solomon, who was a king. You have Luke, who was a doctor, and Amos, who was a shepherd, and Matthew, who was a tax collector. We all hate them. All the world, all of these writers were very different in their occupation and their backgrounds. Another, another point to ponder is this. The Word of God was written in many different places. Now, now think about the unity of the Word of God. As you read through it, I mean, you think about the the ultimate I mean the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to assume his rightful place on the throne of David to rule and reign. I mean, think about how it all ends there with Him being elevated and glorified and exalted. All the writers point to that day. All the writers tell us how that's going to happen one day. Someone says, well, the cross is what it's all about. No, it's not. Because that's a pretty low note in history. But, buddy, He rose again three days later. And let me tell you, He's going to come back to rule and reign one day and take His rightful place on the throne of David. That's what the theme of the Word of God's really about. Oh, this is a wonderful thing that we're saved and we can come to Christ. I understand that. But man, thank God for the unity of the scriptures that point us to a day when Christ isn't on a cross, but Christ is exalted and reigning. <clears throat> the Bible was written on three different continents. You know, today we we talk about all these cultural differences that, that seem to, you know, make us unique and we say america is the melting pot of the world and all of that and i'm okay with that i like that let's become one i understand all that but look at look at how different cultures do view things differently i oh, hold on though the bible the writers of the word of god it, i mean they were literally in three different areas of the world i mean three different major continents uh continents asia yeah continents Asia, Africa, and Europe. Those are three different continents. And Moses wrote in the desert in Sinai. Paul wrote in a prison in Rome. I mean, think about Daniel who wrote in the Babylonian exile. Ezra wrote in a ruined city of Jerusalem. All from different locations, and yet we have the congruity, the the commonality. We have this consistency of the word of God. Why do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? It's so unified. It, it, it's so consistent. Even though there are <clears throat> all these differences. Fourth, it's re- written under many different circumstances. Now I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I encourage people to not make major decisions when they're under a lot of stress or going through difficult times in their life. Try not to make major decisions when you're going through a, a, a you know, major tragedy or a difficult period of your life or a time of depression or discouragement. Be careful with decisions. Well, these writers wrote from all kinds of different circumstances and through different circumstances. I mean, take David, for instance. He wrote during a time of war. Jeremiah, he wrote at a sorrowful time in Israel's downfall. Think about Israel was in a bad place. And man, I mean, there was no hope. And here he is writing this book, God using him to pen it. Peter wrote while Israel was under Roman domination. Joshua wrote while invading the land of Canaan. I mean, we have these men that, that God used to help pen the word of God. And yet we find that it's all unified. Finally, under that element of unity, the writers had different purposes for writing. I mean, they didn't all just write for one reason. They had different reasons for writing. Isaiah wrote to warn Israel of God's coming judgment on their sin. And they had turned their back on God. They'd rejected the word of God. And he says, listen, I've got to preach and proclaim the word of God. And God penned the words that we now read in that book of Isaiah. Matthew, he wrote to prove the Jews to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Zechariah wrote to encourage and discourage Israel, who had returned from the Babylonian captivity. Paul wrote addressing problems in different churches through Asia and Europe. And yet all of these writers, once again, in the midst of all those different circumstances, I, I mean, all these factors put together, the Bible written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, different places, various circumstances and addressing a multitude of issues, it's still unified. That's an amazing thing. That's a miraculous thing. We can't get... So unbelievable is that, that Josh McDowell, maybe you've heard of him, he considered himself an agnostic at one point. He he believed that Christianity was worthless. Until he made some intellectual discoveries of his own. Until he started to dig into this real, this, the Word of God and try to come to some conclusions about whether or not it is the Word of God. He makes this statement. He, his observation is this. Take 10 contemporary authors and ask them to write their viewpoints on one controversial subject. Would they all agree? One controversial subject. Would they all agree? Well, we know that's not going to happen. He says, no, we would have disagreements from one author to another. Now look at the authorship of the Bible, he says. All these authors from a span of 1,500 years wrote on many controversial subjects and they do not contradict one another. That's miraculous, folks. That's proof positive that there has to be a God in heaven because there's no way you can get 40 different men, first of all, to agree on very difficult topics that are addressed in the word of God and then to think that it's going to happen over... 1,500 years and still have the same perspective and the same outlook. Second Peter, we read it already, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. See the Bible? The Word of God. Then we come to some external evidences. Now those are some internal. Let's consider some external for just a moment. Things outside the Word of God itself. First of all, let's consider indestructibility. The fact that the Bible is still here after all of these years. I mean, for a number of years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. You weren't allowed to even have a Bible. You weren't allowed to propagate Christianity. Early on in in, in the Christian faith, you, you would often be put to death or persecuted or ultimately hauled off to jail as we read about the Apostle Paul doing on the road to Damascus. Trojan reigned in 98 to 117 until Constantine did in 300, virtually 325. And from that point on, from those years, virtually every one of the Roman emperors was opposed to Christianity. There were some emperors who did not actively seek out or uh, suppress it in that sense, but very few, if any, condoned it or encouraged it in any way. And many of their efforts were to literally destroy the word of God. We think of Diocletian. Diocletian, he was the ruler immediately preceding Constantine, the one that came right before Constantine. Eusebius, the historian, made this statement. He said, quote, Royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures destroyed by fire. See that over in Church History, book, volume 8. I mean, the fact is, is that, is that these, this Diocletian, this Roman emperor, had said, I am going to totally annihilate Christianity. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. I'm going to get rid of every Bible I possibly can. Diocletian went on to say that if one of a copy of the Scriptures, excuse me, he went on to say that if one had a copy of the Scriptures and did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, he would be killed Furthermore, if you just knew of someone that had a scripture and they found out that you knew and didn't tell them, you died too. And, you know, think about how precious the Bible must have been in those days. They didn't have printing presses. They had to hand copy everything. And someone says, gotcha. That's where I got you because that Bible's been copied and therefore there's all these errors in it. Well, it, that makes sense. That does make sense. It really does make sense. If the Bible was written by man, that makes perfect sense. But see, the Bible is the Word of God. See, God, the Bible says, was, He gave the Bible through inspiration. God breathed. But then the Bible says that He maintained it and kept it pure through what's called preservation. So see, God didn't just throw the Bible on earth and say, do what you want with it. He said, no, that's my word, and I will preserve it. I'll make sure that by the time it reaches 2016, they have the same Bible that I gave them back there in Old Testament times and in early New Testament times. I'm not going to judge mankind by one standard that lived back then and another standard today. So he preserved his word according to Psalm chapter 12. Concerning this period of Diocletian, one historian, Newman, said this. Newman made the statement, quote, "'Multitudes hastened to deny the faith "'and to surrender their copies of the Scriptures. "'Many more bore the more horrible tortures "'and refused with their lastest breath.'" Oh, latest breath, excuse me. Lastest. Why not? Everybody else makes things up and says it's true, so... I've created a word for the dictionary, lastest. Okay, so anyway, they refused with their la- latest <laughs> breath to surrender the scripture or in any way to compromise themselves. So he's saying, Newman says, as he, he writes scripture, he, as he writes his story, he said, history, he says, listen, there were those who quickly said, here's my Bible. You can have my Christ. I want nothing to do with it. I want to live. But he says there were scores that said, uh-uh, no, I'm going to keep serving the Lord even if it means my life. And that's something. After this edict had been given by Diocletian, after it had been enforced for two years, he made the statement, he proudly said, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. But did he? Obviously not. I still have one. See, the Bible has a number of enemies. Scores of enemies. Scores of enemies. But it's indestructible. Let me share evidence, another evidence. Now, I have others to share there, but of course, as you can see, I put X's through things. Let's talk about archaeology for just a moment. We're talking about external evidence, and we can't spend a lot of time here either, but the second source of external evidence is archeology. span Middle Eastern archeological investigators, they've proven that the Bible's true. They've proven that it's accurate, that it's historically sound. You know, that's one of the big things, that this book's just a bunch of stories. No, it isn't. It's a historical document. Nelson Gluick, you read his name; you may pronounce it differently. A renowned Jewish archaeologist, he makes the statement: quote, "No archaeological discovery has ever controverts, controverted a biblical reference." Doctor William Albright, this particular gentleman was not a friend of Christianity at all, but he was probably the foremost authority in Middle East archaeology in the time, in his time, and he said this about the Bible: "Quote." There can be no doubt that archaeology—excuse me, archaeo—archaeology has confirmed. Thank you for your help. <laughs> I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> I probably couldn't have either. <laughs> but anyway, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? This is a well-known archaeologist, and he's not a Christian. And he says, that Old Testament is historically accurate based on what we have found in the earth and on the earth. That's amazing. Let me give you just an example or two. For instance, Abraham's victory over Chetalomer. In the Old Testament, we find in Genesis chapter 14, we find Abraham supposedly defeating Chetalomer. Remember, he goes to get his brother-in-law, uh, his, his nephew, excuse me, Lot, and, and, and we know that uh, it was on the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes and he fights Chetalomer, a big thing there. There's five Mesopotamian kings that come together, and somehow Abraham, you know, with God's help, overcomes and gets the spoil of the land back and so forth and so on. Well, for years, critics stated that these accounts were simply fictitious. They were false. They were all made up. And as a result, a number of people discredited the Word of God, the Bible. However, in the 1960s, the Ebla tablets or Ebla tablets were discovered in, the nor- in northern Syria. Now, I don't know exactly what Ebla is. I'm just saying they're Ebla tablets because that's what I read. But they were found in, the, the, in northern Syria. And the Ebla was a, a kingdom was a powerful kingdom in the 20th century B.C. So that's what they were. The Ebla tablets are, rec- are records of this history of this great nation that, that at one time existed. Now what's important is that many of these tablets make a reference to all five of the cities that are spoken of in the Word of God. Isn't that something? See, they didn't think they even existed. They thought they were a fabrication of man's mind. They thought that somebody had made them up to somehow paint a picture of a wonderful man by the name of Abraham and to somehow prove that his God was so powerful. No, it literally existed. They'd proven it. They found it, proof of it. The battle of Jericho. Think about that for a moment. Another example we see is Jericho in the book of Joshua. For years, again, skeptics thought that the story was just, I mean, falling walls. I mean, it just the city walls fell out. I mean, are you kidding me? That that didn't happen. That's got to be a myth. has to be made up. But in nineteen the 1930s, Dr. John Garstang, he made a remarkable discovery. Here's what he says, quote, As to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt. The walls fell outwards so completely the attackers would be able to, Clamber up and over the ruins of the city. This is remarkable because the city walls fell outward. I mean, they did exactly what the Bible said. is it amazing? It took them until 1930 to find these walls, to recognize the city, but they found that finally mankind caught up with God. On March the 5th, 1990, in an issue of Time Magazine, feature, feature, they featured an article called, Score One for the Bible. In it, archaeo- archaeologist <laughs> Kathleen Kenyon claimed Jericho's walls had fallen suddenly. Really? Many scholars, excuse me, he, she goes on, goes on to say, many scholars feel this was caused by an earthquake, which may also explain the damning of the Jordan. Additionally, it says, grain was discovered which shows the city was conquered quickly. Well, we know how quickly it was conquered. The Bible tells us. They marched around one time for six days and seven times for the seventh day, and they blew those trumpets, and boy, those walls fell flat. They went in, and not one fatality on the Israelite side, but a city was taken quickly. That's why there's so much grain still sitting in there. That's why they have proof that people were still consistently living and going about their business day to day. Again, findings like that make it very clear from an archaeological standpoint, an external standpoint, that this book is historically sound, that it is the Bible, the Word of God. I had to get rid of a lot, let me tell you. I don't want to take much time, but we could speak about prophecy itself. I'll talk more about prophecy tonight. But we see that the Bible is the Word of God. And that's so important to understand. I don't know what you think about the Bible today, I don't know where you stand on it. But it's the Word of God. An amazing book. I mean, think about it. For thousands of years, this book has continued to exist. Not only exists, but it's still a bestseller. Can you imagine that? And some say, that's coincidence. That's just, no, no, it's not. We have the internal evidence. We have external evidence. I mean, we have the, the fact that it's indestructible and that it's still here today, despite all the effort, efforts through years of society and culture to destroy it and to, to ultimately discredit it. It's still here. I mean, we have the aspect of archaeology that every time we turn around, we're digging up something new and it's only confirming the historicity of the Bible. We have prophecy that we could go back to and look through the Word of God and and see like passages like Micah 5-2 that say that Christ would be born in Bethlehem and recognize the fact that He was and it's like one and ten to the fifth power. That it would possibly turn out that way. I mean, how does that happen? There are over 2,000 prophecies in the Word of God. There's over 500 probably that still need to be, uh, at least 500 that need to be fulfilled. But even take that for, I mean, just 2,000 of them, and they all come true. And someone says, well, Nostradamus, he had some prophecies, and Nostradamus did this, and Nostradamus did that. Yeah, but was he 100% accurate? Because if you were a prophet of God and you weren't accurate, you died. God expects perfection. God expects His prophets to get it on every time. And if they're not on target every time, then they're not prophesying what He told them. This book is filled with God's prophecies. A man may append it, but it's His Word. And may I say the same God that said He had come the first time 2,000 years ago came. And boy, I'll tell you, He was born in a manger. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He ultimately took His place on Calvary as was predicted and prophesied in Scripture. And there He hung, and there He bled, and there He died. He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And may I say, that same Jesus is going to come back again. Why? Because the Word of God says He is. Everything He said was true before. Everything He says for now is true. And everything He's going to accomplish in the future is going to happen because God is always true. This book's God's Word. I don't know about you, but I believe the Word of God, I believe it's His Word. And I want you to look at one passage as we close today, and I know we're coming close to time, but please give me this, this one more passage. Chapter 20 of, verse of Revelation. The Bible says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Amen. You know what that teaches us is that the word of God wasn't first seen, read, or experienced on earth. No, it was already in heaven. Yeah. Do you know what you hold in your hand today? A copy of the scriptures. Do you know what the... They like to say this all the time. You know, it's only the originals that were perfect. Guess what they were? Copies. Copies from the one in heaven. Here's what it says, though. Look at this very quickly as we close. Chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead and small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works and the sea gave up the dead which was in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire fire notice very quickly and I saw the dead verse 12 small and great stand before God and the books were opened see I'm confident that God's recording our deeds if you fail to receive and accept Jesus Christ you will stand at this judgment that's being spoken of here in the book of Revelation you say how do you know that because God's Word says so oh it's authoritative let me tell you something you want to know what else you'll stand before I believe without a doubt that when he talks about books I believe this one's included See, I'm confident that God says, you know what, I gave you a book, my word, so that you could know what I believe, what I think, and what I want. You'd understand my vision, my plan for the world, my goal for your life, my goal for the universe, my goal for the world. I want you to see my purpose for God. Creating what I did and what I want to see accomplished and how I want you to ultimately elevate and magnify my name on the earth. And boy, I tell you what, you're going to stand one day and so will I. If we've rejected Jesus Christ, if we've not received and and accepted his forgiveness and his salvation, we're going to stand before God and there's going to be some books open. Some of those books will incorporate and include what you've done and said and did in your life while here. But let me tell you, the other one will be the standard that God has written and left for all mankind. And that's the word of God. We'll be judged out of this book. How'd you live up to this book? How'd you obey this book? How'd you follow this book? How'd you serve me according to this book? If I could come to you today privately, one-on-one, and just say, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God without question? I wonder what you would say. Human beings, As human beings, we're naturally inquisitive. I want to encourage you, if you have questions about what or whose book this is, dig. Dig. Find answers. Don't just sit in a quagmire of questions. Find what you believe about this book. The Bible, the Word of God. Are you saved? Do you know for sure heaven's your home? Have you settled it? Or will you stand one day at that judgment that we just read about? Hey, He said He would come, and He did. He said He would die, and He did. He said He'd be buried, and He was. But He said He'd rise again the third day. He did. But he also said, the same Jesus said, keep your eye on the sky because I'm coming back. He's coming back. Will you be ready? Why don't you settle today where you'll spend eternity? Why don't you settle today that Christ is your Lord and Savior? Why don't you allow yourself to just trust Him and only Him, not how good you are or what you could do, but what He's already done for you as salvation in your life. Trust Him with your life now. Trust Him with eternity later. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, and we thank you, Father, for just some of the proofs and the evidences that we find in the Word of God. Help us. Father, tonight we'll...